The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes, taking a long look at life under the sun. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. At Sacred City Church, we preach exegetically. That means we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through entire books of the Bible. Most of the time, we are hunkered down in a book of the Bible. Occasionally, you'll find us in a different type of sermon series, uh, but for the next, I think it's like maybe eight or nine weeks or so, we will be finishing out the book of Ecclesiastes. And a lot of people are asking why. why? What was it about Ecclesiastes? And I, I want to just like put it out there. It's mostly sort of uh, selfish reasons. I wanted to learn how to expel Ecclesiastes. I've been trying for a long time uh, to no avail yet. So I wanted to get that out of the way. Uh, no, that's not the reason. The reason we're through in Ecclesiastes is because though this is not a super popular book, it is a book of profound ri- wisdom that is in- unquestionably relevant to us today. Because this book in, in Ecclesiastes, it, it combats or confronts nearly every single ism that we see within the, our culture today. It talks about consumerism. It talks about individualism. It talks about secularism and confronts it with godly wisdom. And so the voice that we're hearing from throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is Kohelet or the preacher. And what this preacher is trying to do is draw our attention to the hollowness of life. Though we might look at things on the outside, it seems as if it's substantial, yet when we really get into it and and explore the depths of it, it's really quite empty and unsatisfying. And so he's walked us through different sections where he's he's told us, you know, you you can just consume and consume and consume. Search out all the pleasure that you want. You can work yourself to death. You can collect friends and lovers. You can build mansions and parks and become filthy rich. And there is still something inside of you that's going to want more. It's always going to seem as if there's something else out there. Now, there, there's a, a 60 Minutes interview with Tom Brady. You know, the draft happened this week. I'm back in my football mindset, so get ready for all these football analogies that come at you. 60 Minutes did an interview with Tom Brady a, a few years back. I think he had just won his fourth or fifth Super Bowl, and he's sitting there. And if you don't know anything about Tom Brady, Tom Brady, he's a good-looking dude. He literally has a, a model for a wife. He's buku bucks rich. Uh, he's got some really adorable kids, nice, beautiful house. Like the, his future for him is set in every, every sense of it. You know, you look at, at his life. He's achieved what almost everybody sets out to, or desires to achieve professionally, five Super Bowl rings. And he's sitting there and an interviewer is asking him and, and he, he, he says, you know, I've accomplished all this, I've accumulated all this, but it seems as if, there has to be something more. Now, this is exactly what the preacher is telling us, right? He's, he's giving us a heads up. There's something more. There's, there's more than what's just under the sun. Now, for some of us, it's going to take exploring that for ourselves to really come to grips with that. Like we're going to have to exert ourselves and, and, and take our, our job to the furthest it'll take us. 
romance, the furthest it'll take us, pleasure to the furthest it'll take us. But what we'll realize sooner or later is that we're on a fool's errand. Or maybe you've seen the video of the dad who sends his two daughters into an automotive shop and tells them to go get turn signal fluid, right? Have you seen that? Right, they go in, they come out, and they're like, Dad, you made us look really stupid. There's no such thing as blinker fluid. Right, that's what life becomes like if we're continuing to chase and chase and chase. It's a fool's errand. However, the preacher says, for what it is, yes, it's, it's a fool's errand. It's vanity. But he doesn't just say give up on it, right? Don't, don't just fold. Don't, don't turn over and roll dead. You know, it's, it's not that. That's not the point of Ecclesiastes. And a lot of people come to Ecclesiastes and think that. And, and to do so is a grave misunderstanding because when we really get to the bottom of it, Ecclesiastes is an incredibly optimistic book. But we've got to get through some layers of, of sorting out what is vanity and what offers meaning in life. And so what the preacher is doing, he's, he's sharing wisdom with us, his, his original readers, but with also with us today in how we can go about life and actually enjoy it. Even though life is riddled with dashed hopes and unmet expectations, there is still joy to be found in this life. Now, if Ecclesiastes were music, can anyone guess what key it would be in? Ecclesiastes would be in the key of D minor. Any Spinal Tap fans out there? It's the saddest of all keys. He starts out, vanity of vanities. Chapters one and two are just like everything in life under the sun is meaningless. It's vapor. Vanity of vanities. The life is full of futilities. Yet even in the minor keys, there are glimmers of the major. Occasionally, you'll get the major third in there that gives you lift and a sparkle, a glimmer of beauty. And that's what happens when the preacher says to us, there's nothing better. He says, there's nothing better for us to eat and to drink and to enjoy our toil for this is from God. He's saying there are still bright spots. Though a lot of this is dark, there are still bright spots in this life. Now, I think that analogy is really helpful just in, in capturing what life is truly like, right? Is, is it not a bunch of minor chords with a few major chords sprinkled in there? Like there's this intermix of major and minor, of light and dark. And we see this in, in last week's passage in chapter three where the preacher tells us there is a, a time for everything, a time for celebrating and time for mourning, a time for sowing and for reaping. There's a time for everything. And in everything, there is beauty. If you're, if you're an Enneagram 4, some of you are like, what is he talking about? If you're an Enne- it's, it's, a, it's a personality profile that helps us kind of understand how God's wired us. If you're an Enneagram 4, you have this incredible gift where you can sort of look at life for all it is with, with the darkness and the, and the, and the light and, and the, the the pain and the, the joy, and you can say, there is beauty in this. God's given you a gift, and people like 
us, the church, need to hear from you and be able to see that because this is, is what the preacher is talking about. There is beauty and joy and delight even in the sad and painful times that God has laced this world with all kinds of grace. So that's what he talked about last week. And now before the preacher keeps moving through this symphony of wisdom, he pauses He's not going to add new content. He's going to pause and sort of anticipate some of the objections that are probably welling up within our heart. Now, fellas, you know all about this. When you want something, right, you want that new truck, you want that new toy, if you're wise, you're first going to go to your wife and consult with her before you jump on something like that. And when you go into that conversation, you don't just prepare the initial, here's what I want sort of thing, and this is maybe why we should. You're thinking ahead to her objections. You're preparing for the, yeah, but this. Right? You're, you're, you're preparing in that sense. Now, this is exactly what the preacher is doing. He's preparing, or he's, he's anticipating our yeah, buts. Now, he has already begun in Ecclesiastes from a perspective that I think is uh, kind of dissettling for most of us when he says, vanity of vanities, everything is vanities. A lot of us, when we initially hear this, we're kind of appalled by this. We're offended. Like, how could he say that? Like, there's so much, like, I love my kids, I love my work, there's all this good stuff. How could he possibly come to that conclusion? And then by the time we get to the end of chapter two, when he sort of explored all of the avenues that he's had the ability to explore, we kind of start seeing things the way that he sees things, right? That the, the streams do all, in fact, flow to the sea, yet the sea is not full, that, that the wind cycles continue to blow round and round, but they don't really ever arrive. And so we can sort of grab on to that, maybe with some reservations, but, but we grab on to it. But just when we've wrapped our heads around that, the vanity of vanities, he comes at us with this second part of his thesis. And it seems like they're opposite, Right? He says, vanity of vanities, everything's meaningless, everything's vapor, everything's futile. Yet on this other hand, he says in chapter 2, verse 24, he says, there is nothing better than to eat and drink and find enjoyment and toil for this is of God. Those two things seem incompatible, right? Now being convinced of his first, first thesis, the vanity part, we don't just roll over and accept the second part of his thesis, in fact, Proverbs 14, 15 tell us that would be unwise to do. It says, the simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thoughts to his step. So it's good for us to ask these questions. It's good for us to push back against the wisdom of the preacher and let all of our questions come forward like this. How could we possibly enjoy our toil if it's all like chasing wind? How can we go on eating and drinking and filling our bellies full when there's so much injustice and brokenness in this world? How could we possibly enjoy the joyful times if we know they're just gonna end with frustrating times? 
Now, these are significant questions, and it's necessary to ask them if we really want to grapple with this wisdom that the preacher is offering, because this wisdom isn't, isn't something that you would naturally arrive on at your own. Right? We need some guidance. So the preacher is devoted to helping us live in this tension of the vanity of vanities and there's nothing better than. So that's what this passage is today. He's trying to help us get to the point with one breath we can say that. Vanity of vanities, all is meaningless. Yet with the next say, man, but I really enjoy it. That's a sweet place to be. So let's, let's open up our Bibles. Uh, if you have the Pew Bible in front of you, it is page 319. Uh, if you have your own Bible, that page number probably won't work for you. But here's, a, here's an easy, quick tip. Halfway through your Bible, open it up. You're probably in the Psalms. Move two doors to the right. You'll go Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, right there in the middle of the wisdom literature. And that's where we're at. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16. And he's going to show us the first objection that he's anticipating. And it has to do with injustice. He's, he's looking out in the world, and of course in this world we see injustice, but there's something unique about this perspective that is not just the existence of injustice. It's the fact that injustice exists in places it shouldn't. Take a look at verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Now, contextually, what's happening here with Solomon, because this is the voice of Solomon, the preacher, who's, who's speaking to us, there has been season upon season among God's people where the religious leaders, the people who are supposed to help God's people stay on the right track and be devoted to God, have they themselves veered away from God. That they have been gravitated towards things that are not God and therefore there is this corruption, this injustice that spurs up. So we see in the place where people ought to be offering sacrifices to God on behalf of God's people, they're stealing from God. They're robbing. We see this even uh, in the book of 1 Samuel where Samuel, he's, he's the first, well, um, there's Eli who's, he, he's a priest and he's got some sons who are supposed to take care of the temple and offer sacrifices. And we see Eli's sons completely fail at this responsibility. They're corrupt, they're wicked, and eventually God knocks them down. Uh, but we see this even throughout the whole narrative, past Solomon. We see the kings that will come after Solomon. It's not very long after Solomon that the kingdom uh, of Israel divides into two. The kings veer off on their own agenda. They forget about God. And so what he's saying is that these re religious leaders have veered from righteousness. And that's why we have these Old Testament prophets who call us back. They say, hey, you, you've gone off path. Come back. Refocus. Reset your heart upon God. Yet even with those voices, those who ought to do what is right and what is just are oftentimes corrupted and wicked. Now, there's a, a, a series on Netflix called House of Cards. I don't necessarily endorse it. It's very hard to sit and watch. But this captures this perfectly. Frank Underwood is this character who begins politics. I think he starts as like a, a senator maybe. 
And through the series, he basically works himself up until he comes to the point, uh, he becomes president. And he's, he's lying, he's cheating, he's even killed people in order to get this. Perfect example of how wickedness and corruption sets into the place where, if any place in the secular world ought to be concerned with justice, it no longer is. Now, this isn't just in, in politics. We, we see this really in all different kinds of sphere, spheres. We, we hear accusations of immorality and exploitations among schools and in church settings where priests and youth leaders and teachers violate kids. See, that, that is a, just an example of how these places that are meant to be righteous and good have been corrupted. And really what we see is that, that that's because of the fall, this is unavoidable. Those who get power without the right parameters, with the help of God, will naturally come to abuse it. See, the, the disease of sin spreads everywhere, even up the totem pole. So the question that, that is being asked here is how can there be enjoyment if wickedness compromises the most important places of our society? Right? How can we enjoy working and paying our taxes to the state of Illinois if they are going to misappropriate that money? How can we enjoy the life that we're afforded if it's a product of so much injustice? It's a valid question. And the preacher gives us an answer in verse 17. He goes on, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Now, without condoning the injustice and the wickedness that he sees, the preacher acknowledges it. He says, yes, it's there. And he goes back to this time concept that we saw last week where he says there's a time for everything. And like we saw, time expires. Time eventually will run out. And so what he's saying, the time of the wicked will come to an end. At some point, they'll have to answer for what they've done wrong. That God is going to judge both the righteous and the wicked and every wrong thing, every injustice that has been done will be dealt with to God's perfect standard. And in fact, the doing will be undone. That the injustice will be resolved. That God's judgment is so thorough that not a single remnant of wickedness will remain. So that's the answer to this ob objection. Like, how, how can we go about with all this injustice? He's saying, God's gonna take care of it. God's going to deal with the injustice in his own timing. But there's also this glimmer here because you think, you know, if, if power is corruptible and God is all-powerful, how, how is it that he doesn't fall off the, the wagon? How, do, how is it that he doesn't become corrupted? And that's where... Again, where we can have assurance that God always does what is good, right, and perfect. That he is incontaminable. So this next objection arises, and it's sort of in the same vein. 
They're asking, well, what about those people who have suffered at the hands of the wicked, those who have been oppressed? If you jump down to to chapter four, verse one, he says again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And what we see here is true of all societies, that there are people who are susceptible and vulnerable, people who are used and then spit out. The wicked will always create wounded. And for these wounded, the preachers identify that there's a sense where they're not comforted. Right? There's a sense where they're just trampled on, and that's what it is. That's how life is. Now, what he's, he's doing here, he's painting this heartbreaking picture of somebody who is down, somebody who's out, who's been pr- oppressed, who's been trampled on, who's been abused, who's been left alone. And so the, the, the objection is, who's gonna comfort them? Who's gonna take care of them? But this question gets a lot more personal when we think about our own wounds, how we've been hurt by people who have had power, whether teacher or parent boss, we're wondering, who's going to comfort me? In a world full of wickedness, there will always be the wounded. It's inevitable because sin is destructive. As long as sin has a hold on this world, there will be destruction. Now, this oppression happens on a large scale, right? We can look back at the Khmer Rogue regime from Cambodia in the 70s and see the destruction that they uh, entailed or or what they uh, brought about. But we can also see that this is even a nod on a subtler, more, more simple level of our own living rooms. And maybe, maybe your parents have hurt you. Maybe, maybe it's been blatant abuse or, 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 or um, just putting you down, physical, verbal, emotional. And you just feel, if I've been violated by my parents, the people in power, how could I, who is there to comfort me? Right? And these are wounds that don't just go away once you get out of adolescence. They, they sit with you for a long time. Maybe, maybe you've been fortunate where you don't have a home like that, where you grew up, but there's still these, these jabs and maybe they're subtle or accidental that, that kind of sit with you, that just linger. Even the best parents are, are going to make mistakes like this. You feel violated. You feel like the power has been misused. See, that stuff wounds a kid. That stuff leaves you wondering, who is going to comfort me? Now, this time, the preacher, he doesn't have a clean answer. Not, not in a one that sort of like wraps it up in a bow tie and sends you on your way and you feel chipper and happy. It, he exercises wisdom here. He doesn't say, oh, just brush it off. He, he, he validates the hurt and the sorrow that this entails. He doesn't gloss over it. He, he looks you in the eye and he says, that is unbearable. In verse two, he goes on to say, you know what? It's better 
to have lived your life and then died and to be on that side of it, right? that's better for you. You've made your way through. You've gotten past it. You're, you don't have to worry about that now. But then in verse 3, he says, better yet, he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds done under the sun. Now, what it sounds like is the preacher is saying that, that it's just better to not live. That, that's, there's a subtlety to what he's saying here. He's validating the pain. Life is really hard. But he's also pointing us toward a wholeness that the wounded person can find that is beyond this life under the sun. Though this life leaves you hopeless and alone and, and feeling abandoned, you say, hey, there is a comfort to find that's beyond the sun. You won't find it here. You'll find it beyond the sun. Now, this comfort isn't a... a a cushy, Americanized version of comfort. I think a lot of times when we think of the word comfort, we think of that, like laid up on the couch, chilling, nice cold beverage in hand. You don't have to worry about finances or what your kids are up to. It's just everything's smooth and easy and convenient and carefree. That's not the type of comfort that the preacher is speaking of here. He, he's talking about a comfort that, that speaks deep to the crevices of your soul, that, that settles what's been unsettled, that bandages the wounds that have set for years and decades, a comfort that can sustain you even in the midst of hurt as it accumulates. See, that's a comfort, that's a, a consolement that no human, no thing, no substance can accomplish. He's saying it's beyond the sun. Right? To the objection of who's going who's gonna to comfort me, he's like, God's there. He's looking out for you. But then we have to back up to chapter 3, verse 18, because we've got another, another objection that pops up. In verse 18, he says, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Now he's telling us, he's like, you ought to identify a lot more with your dog Rufus than what you already do. And even, even to put it like that, that's being generous. I, I had to call Public Works this week about some roadkill that was out on the street here. Right, if, we, if we took a bleak, long look at life, we could come to the conclusion that there's not much difference between our life and the life of a creature. In fact, that's what he goes on to say in 19 through 21. He says, for what happens to the children of man and, the, uh, and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to the dust, all return. Now, a lot of times people appeal to our uniqueness as human beings to the Imago Dei, that we have been created in the image of God. That there is something about humans that, that contains uh, the thumbprint of God that no other creature on earth does. And even so, 
the Imago Dei doesn't, it doesn't leave us, it, it doesn't bypass the corruption that comes with death. Death still waits. Death is going to come and it's going to return us to the dust. That God is actually going to come and he's going to take back the breath that he once breathed into us. Right? When he was forming Adam in the Garden of Eden in the dust, he put the dust together and he breathed into his lungs and Adam came to life. One day that breath will be returned to God and all that will be left will return to the dust. Now what this is is an argument of mortality. What's the point of trying if we end up right back where we began? Why build stuff if it's going to be torn down? Why exercise my body if it's eventually just going to fall apart? Right? How can we possibly enjoy this life if it's going to come to an end? And, and even then, what's to say about the end? Right? We die, is that it? Is there up and down or we go up to heaven, the beasts go down? Right? What's going on? If you're a, a skeptical secularist, if, you, if you're thinking that this life is all that there is, Taking an honest and thorough examination of this question might change your mind. Because if you believe there's nothing beyond the sun, that this life is all there is, and you've come to the agreement with the preacher that all is vanity, right? That you've seen, even in his analogy of, of the earth and how it functions, that, it, that there is vanity. It's all vanity. Then there's no way that you can say Life is meaningless and enjoyable. It has to be one or the other. Intellectual integrity will not allow it. And so in this case, the most uplifting thought you can offer someone is, well, at least you'll be dirt again one day. That's as good as it's gonna get. Right? Because when you die, there's nothing after this. There's no paradise, there's no heaven. It's just worm food. That's it. To this argument, the preacher responds with verse 22. He says this, So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Now, he's offering two rebuttals in this statement. The first one is appealing to our work, the toil that we have. Humans are different from creatures in the fact that we have a responsibility to work. In the Garden of Eden, God told Adam and Eve to tend to the garden, see to its its fruitfulness, uh, cultivate it. See, the most animals have to do is provide fertilizer, right? They're, They're not really working. And because humans have this unique responsibility, there is dignity in human life because we have the ability to work even if it is vanity, even if it is striving after wind. But part two is actually where he really settles in here. He says, the fact that you can even question what happens next sets you apart from the beasts. Your cat perched up on his little shelf is not asking existential questions, right? Your your hamster spinning in the wheel is not not, uh, theorizing about what the meaning of life is about. Creatures don't think this way. 
And so he says, you have the ability as a human to even raise the question, what happens next that sets you apart? But he asks this rhetorical question, who can see what happens at the end? Or who can help the man see what happens at the end? He's pointing to God. God is the one who gives us the ability, the capacity to see that there's something after death, to even reason with this. But ultimately, it's God who gives us to knowledge to know what happens next. The preacher will go on later on in in chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes and and tell us that the body returns to the dirt, but the, the soul, the spirit returns to God. See, animals don't know that. They can't rationalize that. It's God who gives the ability to know what happens after death. Now, while we're sort of on the topic of worth, we need to go back and look at this next objection that happens in in verse four of chapter four. He says, then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and striving after wind. This is a healthy objection, A lot of times, our motivations for work are skewed, right? There are ulterior motives that are driving us. We might say we want to provide for our family and prepare for the future, but really, underneath of all that, we're just trying to keep up with the Joneses. We're trying to to increase our lot. We want a nicer car, longer vacations, more expensive toys. We want the Magnolia home, the cuter clothes, And so we go and go and go and strive and strive. It's just a a comparison endeavor. And if if you're thinking, you know, that's not really part of my life, then I think you're kind of naive to the inclinations of your heart. Right? We need to check our heart here. Comparison and competition has always been part of the fallen world. Not too long after the fall, Cain killed Abel. Why? Because his offering wasn't as good as Abel's. We see Joseph sold into slavery. His brothers were upset that Joseph got more attention from his dad. This comparison, this competition drives us. And you think how you reason with this is once I get to this place, once I have this number in the bank account or this is my car that I drive or this is the type of vacation I get to take, then I'm done, then I'm set. Nope. Mm Mm-mm. It consumes you. It takes over your life because you get that and you think, you know what, I think we can maybe do one better. Just a little bit better. Maybe a day or two longer. It consumes you. Or rather, as verse five says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. You become an accidental cannibal. You're just consuming yourself. And to this... The preacher offers a nice proverb for us in verse six. He says, the answer to enjoying life is contentment. Take a look. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving and and a striving after wind. He says, it's better to have one empty hand and be okay with it than to keep your wheels spinning all the time. In fact, if you want 
to go about life and miss out enjoyment uh, on the, the, the simple gifts that God gives us, go ahead and keep spinning your wheels. Keep grinding. Go hard. Chase it. It won't work. See, the only way that we can know for sure that we're gonna enjoy the gifts that God gives us in life is if we're content with what's already in our hand. Now, the objection in verses seven and eight is pretty similar. Similar, similar, that's not a word. Similar. Because it shows that accumulating all this stuff, money and things, will inevitably keep you lonely. It'll detach you from human relationships, which, simply put, it'll make you lonely. And if you examine our society, our culture, loneliness is an epidemic. There are a lot of lonely people in our city. And I'm betting that one or two of them live right next door to you. Because people are hungry to make their first million or hit those big milestones, people are likely to put family and friends on the back burner. Or, or worse yet, right? You have the family, you have the friends, but you neglect them because you're too busy trying to keep up with your work so you can't even enjoy what you've accumulated. And he says in verse seven, again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet is there Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is vanity and an unhappy business. And, and, and the answer that the preacher gives is, God has given us the gift of companionship right, with friends and with family. This is verse nine. This is like a, the wedding passage, right? And if you're single, don't, this isn't, this is not just about a marital relationship. So don't, don't pigeonhole yourself in this. He says, two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A three-fold cord is not quickly broken. Now, if you were here for a relations, relational soul seminar a couple, I guess, back in March, the whole seminar started out with this statement, that the quality of your life will be determined by Relationships. Just wrap your mind around it. The quality of your life is determined by relationships. It's not about what you accumulate. It's not about your things. It's not about making a, a name for yourself. It's in your relationships. And so often we, we keep ourselves preoccupied with this business that we miss every relational opportunity that comes along our way. That we're so task-oriented or economical, we have this mindset that keeps us moving striving for the end goal, striving for the next marker to press on and keep going, that we miss out on these relationships. Now, if we, if we just stop, and if we think, if we, if we treat life more like a walk around the block, 
with no agenda, just strolling through the block, then like a race that we're trying to hit the markers and the checkpoints. If we stop to chit-chat with our neighbors and enjoy them and find pleasure in, in the simple connections, we would find companionship. We would find the answer to our objection of loneliness. But even more so, we'd press into the people that God has put in our midst to have real relationship with our fellow brothers and sisters, to really know the people who are sitting in our living room. See, if you are able to find companionship in the image bearers that are in your vicinity, your enjoyment of life will increase. Now, hopefully your objections are thinning out here because there's only one left, and it comes in the form of story. It's in verses 13 through 16. He says, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king with who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun. Along with that, youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also, or surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Long story short, everybody gets 15 minutes of fame. Right, the sentiment of Andy Warhol. Everybody's gonna get their 15 minutes of fame. You'll be in the spotlight. You'll feel as if people are rallying behind you for one minute and the next it seems as if it's gone. Those who are celebrated one moment are forgotten the next. Think about it. Who won Best Actor five or six years ago? Right, what films have they been in since? I mean, I Googled it. I can't even remember their names. Think of who topped the charts in, in the 1990s. Where are they now? With the exception of Beyonce. See, this isn't just true of celebrity and, and popularity. This is, this, is, um, this is true of our relationships. There will be BFFs with some per, somebody for one minute, and the next we're cut out. We have this hunger to be accepted and to belong. We want to know that there's a place for us, that that even this desire just to be well thought of. And so we see that we could chase this acceptance. We could try really hard to earn it and, and, and get it and then try really, really hard to maintain it. But eventually it's going to wear out. Now, if you've experienced this, if, if, you can, if this strikes a vivid uh, uh, scenario in your mind where you've felt that, you've been in and then out, or you've been trying to get in, I think a lot of my high school life was just trying to get in. I'm sure on time, so I'll spare you the story. But it's just the sense, there's, there's a lot of hurt in that, of trying to get in. To, and then once you're in, you get dismissed, and then what? Now, this objection, he ends, there, it doesn't seem as if there's a rebuttal to this. But if you peek ahead to chapter 5, he, 
he at least gives us a nod. He points us in the direction which where we can go to find acceptance. He, it's a command, it's a warning to guard your steps, but he's telling us where we can go, to the house of God. What he's telling us is the acceptance of man is fickle. It's here one day, gone the next. But the place where we can find true acceptance is with God. It's beyond the sun. Now the preacher overcomes all of these objections as they come out him and you might still be wondering like how? Like how, how do I actually know? How do I know if I'm accepted? Where can I find companionship? Where, how in the world do I arrive at a place of contentment? It, tell me what I need to know about life after death. What does it look like for the wounded to be comforted? How does God possibly deal with all this injustice? Right? The, the, we want some details. Now, the, the preacher, he answers these questions, and he, he does so correctly. But, but the answers he provides are, are like silhouettes. They're, they're figures. They're generic shape and form, but there are no details. Now, as time marches on, God has progressively revealed how all of this would be, how all of it would become true. In Hebrews 1.1, we're told long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The key to enjoying life, even with all its baggage, its vanity, its toil, the answer to our objections of how we could possibly enjoy this life gets settled in the person and work of Jesus. See, this longing that we have for accepted, to be accepted, it's met where Jesus, he looks at us and he says, while you were still sinners, I'm gonna die for you. I'm gonna die for you so you have a place to belong, to, uh, so I can adopt you into the family of God. So no, you aren't just strangers and aliens and orphans. You are children of God, sons and daughters. And it's here in this context between the relationship with our heavenly father Within, within the relationships with our fellow brothers and sisters, and even those beyond, those people that we're praying for that would become our brothers and sisters, those people that we're on mission to that we're sharing the gospel with, the kids that are gonna be in this room for VBS. We're praying that God would adopt them, give them a saving faith to believe in Jesus. And that's where our, our companionship comes from. And Jesus, who unites us to our Heavenly Father, Jesus, who gives us the Holy Spirit, who's constantly with us as our comforter, who does not leave us or forsake us. And we have a family, a gospel family, to sojourn this painful world with. And you know what? We get to enjoy it along the way to see the beauty and the pain. And in the context of this, this relationship with God and his church, this is where we learn true contentment. It, it doesn't have anything to do with things. It's a matter of drawing deeply from the grace that God supplies through relationship with him and relationship with others. So that we can say his grace is sufficient. His grace comforts my soul. It's by the grace of the gospel that God comforts 
the downcast. He, he goes up and, and stands toe-to-toe with the oppressor of sin and death and, and evil, and he pummels it for us. And then, and then he scoops us up in his arm. He says, there, there, it's going to be okay. And then in turn, as people who have been comforted by our Heavenly Father, we get to be comforters of those around us. That's where this comfort comes from. And then justice. What about justice? How do we know that God's going to deal with things? Well, the cross points us, first of all, to the justice that our sins demanded. Right? Jesus went to the cross to appease the wrath of God to be, so that we could be justified, forgiven of our sins. That whoever would turn to him and place their faith on him would be saved and know the forgiveness. But for those who reject the cross, those who walk away from God, who say, I can do this on my own, I don't need help, they'll eventually have to answer for all the injustice, all the wickedness, all the sins, all the lack of compassion on their own, that their blood will have to be shed. Now, God is gracious and that even the most vile of sinners can come and receive forgiveness, that Jesus has fully absorbed that. But that which is not dealt with by the cross will be dealt with. God will eradicate wickedness and injustice forever. See, what you put your trust in not only determines your eternity, life after death, See, what you trust in, what you look to in this life now will determine if you can actually enjoy it. And if you come and you you keep your eyes on Jesus, there is so much to gain. Father, we thank you for your grace to us in Christ. We don't deserve it. We don't. If we got what we deserve, we should just be in the futility of this world for eternity. In fact, that's what hell is like. You're so gracious in dealing with us that everything that we need, everything, every objection in our heart about this, you have a remedy in Christ that justice is found and compassion and comfort and and contentment and, and, and relationship. Father, you give us good gifts. Would you help us to enjoy them? And Father, as we come to the Lord's table today in the simple gift of, of bread and wine, would you help us to savor it, to enjoy it, to know that this is a meal that points beyond the tangible physical elements into something spiritually profound. Help our souls to savor this, to, to be sustained through our week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.